deep in my record collection is uh, one of my favorite soundtracks to a movie. Now, I don't normally buy soundtracks because they're terrible. Uh, you're in the movie, you hear a song, and you're like, I gotta buy that soundtrack. And then you buy the soundtrack and it's terrible. But if there's one soundtrack for me that rises to the top, and I brought it for you today, it's from The Big Chill. Anybody? Yeah, this is like the best album put together for any movie, rivaled maybe by um, Remember the Titans, but it's really the same soundtrack. Um, any Remember the Titans fans? Yeah. All right, maybe I'll share a story about that. We'll see how the sermon goes. <laughs> if, if it feels to you like I'm... Um, tanking the sermon, just someone go, hey, remember the Titans, and then I'll share that story. <laughs> so, definitely better, but uh, some good stuff in here. Marvin Gaye's I Heard It Through the Grapevine, anybody? Uh, my Girl, The Temptations. The Temptations are one of my favorite bands. Uh, oh yeah, Good Lovin'. Not with a G, but just an N. Good Lovin'. Anyone? The Tracks of My Tears. Not really a Smokey fan. Smokey Robinson for the young people. Um... Uh, yeah, Joy to the World, Three Dog Night. Anybody? Yeah, good stuff. I'm not going to read all these, but go get the record. It's fantastic. Um, but I thought I'd bring that into some show and tell. And if you don't know about the movie, <clears throat> it's a 1983 film, and it's about this reunion of all these old friends who hadn't seen each other in 15 years. And what brought them together after all these years <clears throat> was the death of someone that they knew a mutual friend back in the day. His name was Alex, played by Kevin Costner. That's some trivia, but you never see him in the movie, just his feet. <laughs> but that's what the movie is based around. And I was thinking about, like, there's a lot of movies and a lot of books and a lot of great stories that have to do with a mutual friend has passed away, and then here we all are together again, sort of working through that and reuniting in a way. You know, and I've been a pastor my whole adult life. Um, and death, what I have noticed, is often a means of reunion for old friends and family <clears throat> who may have drifted over the years. The funeral is just as much a reconnection event as it is a memorial to a friend or a loved one that has been lost. And when we're young... Death is something that lives way down the timeline and out of view. And all of us have gone through seasons of our younger lives, and maybe some of you are still there, where you think that um, something like death will never happen to you. It seems crazy, because death is batting a thousand. Is it not? It's just so human to die. And yet somehow when we're young, we think, well, when I was young, I was like, well, maybe Jesus will just come back, and I'll, I'll get to skip that. Does anybody else do that? Okay, just want to make sure I wasn't the only crazy one in the room. Um, and sometimes the way the world is, I pray for that, like, just come back now, you know, thank you. Uh, but when we're young, it's often way down the timeline for us, kind of ignore it. But what I've also noticed is as we get older, um, we start to notice that death is more present. It's around us. I've been the pastor of this church for 17 years. And um, we've gone through lots of different iterations of people and 
it's the city. So people are here for a while and they move on to the next thing, uh, which often takes them away from us. Um, and if you've been around for a long time, you've, you can probably look around and go, wow, just the turn of people. But we've always been, and somebody asked me this uh, a couple weeks ago at a, uh, at a meeting I was in, and they were like, what is, the, uh, what is the age bracket of your church? And this is a question a lot of people ask about churches because churches tend to target certain ages. Um, I don't. I don't know how to do that. Um, so I'm sort of the lazy pastor in the bunch. But what's the, what's the age level? I was like, well, truth be told, we have every living generation in the building. Um, but we are heavy, heavy, heavy younger to older millennial. Or whatever they call you, geriatric millennials. I don't know what they call you. Um, <laughs> that's the heaviest portion. There's, a, there's like a handful of us Gen Xers who huddle together for warmth. Um, <laughs> Just leave us alone, uh, we'll be fine. And then there's a lot of like, a lot of Gen Z coming in. I know nothing about them, even though my kids are in the generation. Um, and then of course some older, we have a lot of boomers actually, which is, uh, I, that's who I think really lit up when I held the big chill record up. Um, so, um, but what I have noticed in our congregation is that death is becoming more and more present in many of your lives, just by virtue of your age. Last Sunday was All Saints Sunday, a day on the Christian calendar devoted to remembering those we have lost in the past year. And I read 22 names from this stage last Sunday, names of friends and family members that you have lost at some point this year. That's a lot if you look around this room. It's a lot of lives. Last weekend, even, there were three funerals for family members of people in this church. I performed one of them. And I found that it doesn't matter all that much if someone died young or old. A loss is still a loss. And death is the presence of an absence. And an absence is very hard. And so today I want to talk about that, which seems odd, but if you were listening to the reading, it's in there. I want to talk about these two things that the Apostle Paul puts forth for us. I want to talk about hope, but I also want to talk about grieving. That is the call in our passage today, to both grieve but also be a people who hope. Now some background on this, um, this part of 1 Thessalonians and I don't know if you always like background information, but I'll give it to you nice and easy. Um, there was a lot of belief in the early Christian communities that Jesus would return in their lifetime. The Apostle Paul seems to also be one of these people, kind of disappointed even at times. Jesus, hello, you know, it's crazy down here, we could use you. And a lot of people sort of assumed that Jesus would come back in their lifetime. It's not their fault. Jesus said some things that made it sound like that. And so they're, they carry around this hope that perhaps maybe they would live to see that, that day. Now, the Thessalonians in particular, it's, if you read through the letter, there's even some portions of it where Paul is addressing this very real issue among them, saying, hey, I know a lot of you quit your jobs and you packed your bags and you moved to the top of the mountain, but go back to life. Go back to work. Support your family. Be a person of living. But a lot of these people weren't really sure what was going on. And then what started happening in this 
Thessalonian church was that people they knew started to die. And so this threw them because they thought that they wouldn't experience that, that Jesus would come back and all would be great. Now, when we talk about death and resurrection, it's not a new thing with Jesus. The Jewish community believed very deeply in a resurrection of people. Um, Jesus' resurrection is unique in the sense that it was him and him alone. The Jewish understanding was that all people would be raised at the same time. So Jesus kind of threw a glitch in the system. But the idea of the resurrection was very familiar to people. And the concern among these uh, Thessalonians was that what happens to people who die and Jesus hasn't come back yet? Now, I know you're hearing that going, and? You know, because we're way down the timeline, aren't we? We're like, oh, these Thessalonians, they don't even understand. We've been waiting forever. But Paul's concern for them was both that, addressing that, and we'll get to that in a second, but also he was concerned about them as a community because they're grieving the loss of people. Would they ever see their loved ones again? This is a concern that they had. They were grieving. And Paul says in verse 13, and this is where we'll sit today, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. Now, we have to be careful to read this text in a way that has Paul saying something like, hey, get over it. Don't grieve. That's actually the opposite of what he's saying. And trust me, I've been in a lot of hospital rooms where someone is in their last days, and there's always some family member who's, uh, and they always have the biggest Bible with the most bulletins in it. Um, there's always some family member whose crusade it is to keep people from grieving, to keep people from feeling those emotions of loss and confusion. They're just sort of, everybody's got to remain happy. We're hopeful. There's a resurrection. True. But there's also these difficult valleys in life, too. And so I've seen my share of these people. And truth be told, in all of my adult career as a pastor, I'm sure that I have done that, too. And maybe you've been guilty of that as well. But we have to be careful here and not read what Paul is saying uh, as something like that. He's not saying that at all. Grieving, in fact, is a very healthy thing to do. It's a healthy practice. It, ha- it even has divine elements to it. We see throughout Scripture when God is also sad and God grieves. Jesus is pictured as someone who is also sad at times, and he grieves Grieving has a way of honoring the lives of those who are lost. I would go so far as to say if we don't grieve the loss of our friends and loved ones, it cheapens their life. We have to honor them in that way. It also stands as a recognition when we grieve. It stands as a recognition of the real struggles that people are going through. We grieve over things like Poverty and injustice and war and brokenness. Grieving also helps us remember that we are part of the human family. Amen? I am always struck by the way the Gospels um, pay close attention to things like blood and skin 
and bones. The parable of the Good Samaritan that Jesus tells has a lot of this graphic detail. Why? Because there's nothing more human than bleeding and being broken. It's the thing that we can all relate to across ethnic and racial and class boundaries. Everybody bleeds. Everybody goes through pain. Or to quote R.E.M., everybody hurts. Sometimes. Terrible song. (laughs) But we grieve over these things because it reconnects us to what it means to be human. It reminds us that we are part of the human family, that we're not isolated from other people. Being someone who doesn't grieve in the midst of great trouble is no badge of honor. It's actually an isolated attempt to remove ourselves from what it means to be human. Grieving is also a means of strengthening the community around us. When we grieve alongside those in our lives who are hurting, we're sharing in the ministry of serving them, of sitting with them in those places. And so Paul isn't saying don't grieve, but he does present this idea of a kind of hopeful grieving. We see this at the funeral that Jesus attended of his friend Lazarus. What's the end of that story, by the way? You can yell it out. What does Jesus end up doing to Lazarus? Raises him from the dead. It's pretty crazy. You know, I always have to tell people who are like, man, the resurrection of Jesus is such an unprecedented event. I'm like, actually, if we back up into John chapter 11, we pull a dead guy right out of the grave. Resurrection seems to just be a part of God and what he does in the world. But Paul encourages this kind of hopeful grieving, and we see this at the funeral of Lazarus. You know, Jesus knows that he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead, but he takes a moment to cry with the family members of Lazarus. You know that verse, right? Jesus wept. You get a sticker in Sunday school for that. All the while knowing that he would raise him from the dead, he pauses in the midst of someone's grief and he cries with them. Paul goes on in verse 14 to say, since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Paul's famous phrase for those who have died. Now this letter is very old. It's Paul's first one by all accounts. But there's already this really sophisticated uh, understanding of what Jesus' resurrection means. And for Paul, these early Christian communities, what it meant for them was that death, though a very universal thing for all of us, is not the end of all things. What Paul is attempting to do here in his wording to the Thessalonians is saying, this is very hard, but it's not the end of all things. Or as we always quote Frederick Buechner around this topic, that the worst thing is never the last thing. Resurrection is a reminder of where things are going. Again, this is all throughout Scripture. The Bible really begins with a resurrection story. Now, you know it as the seven-day creation story in Genesis 1. But read that carefully enough, and you'll see that what's happening is that God is rebuilding something that's quite broken. There's a resurrection happening in the very first story of the Bible. And what Paul and the early Christians understood about 
Jesus' resurrection and what it communicates is the end of the old order of things and the beginning of the new that God is bringing. Resurrection is a reminder of where things are going. These words from Flannery O'Connor I've always found quite powerful. She writes, For me, it is the virgin birth, the incarnation, the resurrection. These are the true laws of the flesh and the physical. Death, decay, and destruction are the suspension of those laws. She goes on to say, I'm always astonished at the emphasis the church puts on the body. It's not the soul, she says, will rise, but the body, and the body glorified. It's a way of looking at the future of all things, that God is going to restore everything that is broken about us and about this world that we share. There's hope in the midst of grieving. The Orthodox Church calls this a bright sadness. The ability to grieve while at the same time carrying a sense of hope and renewal. For me, as an annoying music fan, it's just music. Particularly, it's the blues. There's been some hurt, and yet there's still this kind of hope that lives. And I find that alone, it's very hard to remain hopeful, especially if we're grieving. It's hard to do that by ourselves. Remember, Paul is speaking to the church, not a solitary person. There's no one person on earth named Thessalonians. Maybe there is. That's some new name on the east side. I don't know. (laughs) But he's speaking to the church, and he's saying that the strength of us is always greater than the strength of someone on their own, that we grieve together, and that we find hope together. To be a people of hope is to walk in this world, not unaware of its injustices and struggles, but actually to carry hope into those places. You see, hope really doesn't have a purpose apart from struggle, right? Apart from the troubles that we face, hope really has no purpose. Hope exists so that it might find its way into the darkest places of our lives and provide some kind of way forward. And the call of the church is to be a people of hope, while at the same time, a people who are not unaware of the troubles of this life, a people of hope. The late Eugene Peterson uh, writes these words. It's taken me a long time, he says, with considerable help from wise Christians, both dead and alive, to come to this understanding of the church. It is a colony of heaven in the country of death, a strategy for the Holy Spirit for giving witness to the already inaugurated kingdom of God, a colony of heaven in the country of death, a place of freshness, renewal in the midst of grief. And so I say to you as a pastor, sort of coming off the heels of all saints, and here we are on these um, Sundays before Advent, to not grieve alone, 
but to grieve with others and to grieve with a kind of hope that gives you the strength to go out into the world and to be some kind of hopeful presence in the places where darkness and trouble seem to be winning. But I recognize that that's hard. And let me close with this. It's quite a lengthy passage, um, so bear with me. Uh, From his book, The Creed, Luke Timothy Johnson writes these very powerful words. The creed, by the way, is a thing that we say, and we always begins with the two words, we believe. And he writes these words. First, we believe says that in the creed we profess the convictions that bind us together as a community. We stand together and recite them in public. The creed is this form of a political statement. We declare that we are a people defined by these words. Second, even as we say we believe, we must acknowledge the different ways in which each of us actually believes. Each of us understands the statement of the creed in slightly different ways. Each of us holds it with different levels of intensity. Each of us lives by it with different degrees of integrity. On any given Sunday, I must admit that I'm not sure how secure my conviction is that there is but one God, or, given my own tendency towards idolatry, how much of my life reveals such a conviction. Third, we also acknowledge that no one of us individually believes as much or as well as all of us do communally. The church always believes more and better than any one of its members. Powerful statement. Does this mean that we act hypocritically when we say together we believe? Not at all. It is rather that we want to believe as the church believes, that we choose to stand together under these truths in the hope that our individual I believe someday approaches the strength of the church's we believe. That's why we exist, to walk through this life together because one of us alone is never as strong as all of us together. And our hope, and Lindsay and I say this so much to one another and to our leaders uh, and to some of you when we're in conversation and to others when they ask about our church, we desire so much that when you enter this room on a Sunday, that you leave feeling lifted and encouraged and among friends. Amen. Salvation and white knuckles on a wheel And the deer is in the audience By the border of the darkness Where forgiveness grows and slowly winds away Well, there's a question somewhere asked With all the answers inside But I'll never find a kid before she's gone Well, the day is never done But there's a light on where you sleep And so I hope somewhere the troubles will be gone